This is Brad Warren, co-host of the Changing Waters podcast, co-produced by the National Fisheries Conservation Center and our dear friends at the American Shoreline Podcast Network. I'm very glad once again to uh, return to the second of our interviews with Glenn Spain. Glenn is the Northwest Regional Director of the Pacific Coast Federation of Fishermen's Association, and he has among his many uh, achievements on behalf of making sure rivers and oceans can still make salmon, uh, a cause very dear to my heart. Uh, Glenn has led a long, or co-led really, uh, a long and now quite successful struggle uh, to uh, arrange the removal of four dams on the Klamath River, which is smack in the middle of the West Coast and has been a major uh, constraint on uh, the ability of systems on this coast to support fishing and provide uh, food, as they had done for thousands of years before, uh, to many, many people up and down the coast and, and far away who depend on this magnificent system of rivers and ocean feeding grounds that produces one of the world's great resources of uh, food and actually insight into how humans can work with nature to make sure it still can deliver. With that, I give you our interview with Glenn Spain. Glenn, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. Can you tell us, uh, the Klamath is a pretty obscure river in most people's minds. I'm not sure most people even know where it is. Uh, can you tell us where it is and why it matters and, and why the four dams on it matter? Well, it's very interesting because it's right in the middle of the coastline, the U.S. coastline. Um, uh, being in the middle and being the third largest salmon-producing river in the continental U.S. historically, the salmon from the Klamath uh, were uh, on the order of 880,000 adults would come back from far north, far south, and they, the the smolts would go out far north and far south. So they're intermingling in all of the West Coast ocean salmon fisheries. So they have to be considered, and the health of that stock has to be considered in fashioning all the ocean fisheries, all the way from Monterey, all the way up to the Oregon-Washington border, which is the region known as the Klamath Management Zone. So um, you said something that was new to me, or that I'd forgotten if I, if I ever knew it, that these fish go out into the ocean and they don't all turn right and go north. No, they don't. Uh, it's about 50-50. They uh, typically travel as far south as Monterey and as far north as the uh, Oregon-Washington border and even uh, further into southeast Alaska. Right. The, the, the stocks uh, south of them tend to go north. The stocks north of them tend to go south, but these guys go both directions. So they intermingle. And because of the need, the biological needs of maintaining a sustainable fishery, that means that we get into what's called weak stock management. The weakest stock from the multitude of stocks that intermingle at sea, that will determine how many fish you can catch uh, in total. So for your members in the Pacific Coast Federation of Fishermen's Associations, many of them salmon trollers working off the West Coast, up and down the coast, 
this is one of the great choke points on their ability to make a living and they want it to be healthy so it doesn't choke them is that absolutely yeah Yeah. absolutely under weak stock management any river where the stocks are diminished below the replacement means the whole fishery can be closed we saw that in 2006 for instance where the entire fishery from monterey to the columbia oregon columbia border border was closed because the stocks from the Klamath were so low that they could not take any fishery, even accidental catch, when they intermingle with otherwise very abundant stocks from other rivers. This is why we have to have a policy of no, no river left behind when we're talking about salmon restoration and watershed protection coastwide. You can't leave any river out because the low stock will be the limiting factor in all fisheries. And that's one of the reasons that the commercial fishing industry is so adamant about the need to restore these watersheds, uh, to remove barriers, to remove um, uh, pollution issues, uh, to provide enough water to maintain these healthy watersheds. It's not just that we catch fish, but we can only catch fish when they are already abundant and they, there's enough of them to replace each generation. Right. Uh, now, if I recall correctly, it goes back to when Moses was knee-high that you started working to remove the four dams on the Klamath. I think that's technically right, right? I, uh, I started working for PCFFA in the late 70s, right out of law school. Uh, my background is in science, uh, and law and, uh, uh, you know, and social sciences as well. So I'm polylingual in a lot of ways. Um, but in any event, what happened is that in 1976, the Magnuson Act, Magnuson-Stevens Sustainable Fisheries Act was adopted that required our, uh, fisheries to be put on a sustainability basis. It's a very progressive act. It's certainly uh, uh, ahead of its time, and it's been very effective. But what that meant is that the weak stock management issues are law, written into law. They're also biologically uh, important. Uh, uh, Whether Congress makes a law or not, the biological laws require it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in the 80s, there was a major crash in the West Coast fishery, and it was all due to weak stocks coming from the Klamath. Mm-hmm. We had to close ports, take the boats out of the water, even though there were millions of fish out there from other uh, other sources. The Klamath stocks were so low that we couldn't tolerate any fishery on that. And so that got our attention as an industry very quickly, and we started working on salmon restoration. We actually helped write and helped pass the salmon, uh, the uh, Columbia, excuse me, the Klamath Basin Restoration Act um, shortly after that in the mid 80s, where we started looking at ways to restore the salmon runs in the Klamath. And that's about when, in about 1984, I remember saying, well, you know, there are these dams in the way. We ought to start preparing for getting them down. It's only 26 years away. Their 50-year license was was issued in 57, and it was scheduled to expire in 2006. So I may be 
perhaps the first person to seriously propose that we get the Klamath dams down as a major restoration effort in the uh, in the Klamath. To position the Klamath, the Klamath is right between California and Oregon. A good portion of the lower part of it is in California, and the Klamath River is in Northern California. It draws from Southern Oregon around um, uh, Klamath Lake area, uh, and it is a huge watershed. It is actually larger than several states combined. It's almost as the size of New England. It is also a very, very beautiful place, and it is a unique biological treasure. It is um, a sort of a pre-Ice Age ecosystem. The uh, ice didn't come down that far, mm. so a lot of the species there in the Klamath are unique. And it's also a unique strain of salmon that tend to be temperature-resistant and tend to be very um, durable in terms of their life cycle. So it's a very important treasure uh, biologically. No kidding, uh, especially in a warming climate to have an animal that's been through a few climate cycles. Exactly. Um, if, just to put this in context, it's 1984 and a young lawyer proposes, let's rip out those dams. Um, I'm thinking the world must have looked at you with their eyes crossed. Hysterical laughter was probably the most uh, uh, common reaction. And uh, but, here we are. You're actually close to getting it to happen. Yes. <laughs> We're within three years of, of, of it, uh, and we've just recently passed some major barriers. And we got word just today, by the way, that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which is a federal agency that licenses those four dams, has uh, accepted our application for transfer to a special nonprofit corporation called the Klamath River Renewal Corporation that will have as its sole purpose the removal of those four dams. And we're back on track uh, to do that by 2023 in January. That's the dump truck and blasting date, but we're already working on the preparation, the engineering preparation and the construction preparation uh, for that purpose right now. Now, I'm thinking that this is uh, more than some of the other dam removal cases we've seen. And you know, we've had about a decade of those, and it's been you know, one surprise after another. This is even more surprising. This will be, in fact, the largest dam removal project in human history to date, just in terms of the cumulative size and uh, engineering difficulty of taking four major dams down all at the same time uh, in a free-flowing river system. So, and it's also going to be one of the largest uh, watershed restoration uh, projects in uh, certainly in U.S. history, all combined um, in a beautiful basin where it's rural, it's sparsely settled, and the pieces of an intact ecosystem are all still there and can be reconnected. And the end result will be we may return uh, to a much more abundant salmon resource than we have today. This was once, as I point out, the third largest salmon producing river in the continental U.S. Yeah. Now the numbers are down to about 5% in many years mm -hmm. of that historic uh, number. 
and so low that we have to have uh, some of those fish stocks are ESA, endangered species, listed. And they are triggering major uh, fishery closures almost every year now. Right, right. Uh, so you've got a coastwide interest in it. And, and here's an element of the question that I want to ask. I mean, it, this has been four decades of struggle. Uh, many long, difficult fights probably get dropped because they're so hard and require such persistence. What did it take to, to be able to persist and get to where you're within spitting distance of an amazing triumph? Well, remember that Pacific Coast Federation of Fishermen's Associations is not an environmental group. They're an environmentally dependent industry. Their livelihoods depend on healthy watersheds and healthy salmon runs. This is not an option. This is not something you can sign up for for a few years and then go somewhere else. This is a lifestyle. These are communities of people of generations have been in the industry, inheriting their boats from their, their ancestors, passing those boats on to their kids. This is, uh, if, you, if, you, if you want the fundamental basis of environmental protection, you align the, um, the economics and the sociology along the same lines. And most people don't realize that that is where all of our wealth comes from. Our communities are supported from the environment. Um, when you forget that, you create a lot of problems for yourself and for your society. We're finding that out. The, yeah, the, the hard way. <laughs> the, 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 exactly. And keep in mind that commercial fishing families have been fighting against dams and fighting to restore river systems for uh, over 100 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, I want to uh, circle back to some of the things that it took to get here, but I mean, tell me a story about some of the, uh, uh, the maneuvers that you've pulled together to get here. This, this didn't happen overnight, and a lot of people played. I want to hear about how they came together and, and, and started moving this. Well, the company Pacific Corps, uh, also known as Pacific Power, uh, depending on what state you're in, uh, inherited these dams from Copco Power Company. The uh, 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 basically, the dams were built to provide power to a small little town, a mill town called uh, Klamath Falls, in an era long before there was an, uh, a, a connected grid. The first one was built in 1918, so very far back. The last one was built in the 1960s. Um, and there are four of them uh, in the process. And they were, oddly enough, built with no fish passage, in spite of the fact that the fairly new treaties with the Indian tribes above required fish passage, the uh, Bureau of... I forget the name of the agency in 1918, it was a different name, but the, the federal agency that dealt with dams promised the tribes that they would have fish passage, and the company basically ignored it. It's too expensive. Uh, we don't give a shit about the fish, basically, and they didn't care about the tribes. They, they, that, that kind of uh, rhetoric uh, maintained itself, and the last dam, Iron Gate Dam, was built in California, 
Oregon now has a constitutional obligation to provide fish passage in any dam built. California did not. So the last three dams were built in California for that reason. Again, save money. Then Pacific Orc bought those assets and wound up with this hot potato and with a serious problem in the river. Uh, and uh, the salmon started to decline rapidly from that point on. That meant that a major fishery was declining year by year. That meant that the tribes were losing their fisheries. The tribes were promised in their treaties and their legal obligations uh, to them to provide sustainable um, subsistence fisheries of, of the sort that they were uh, historically uh, occupied. Those started disappearing. And the region was electrifying, but the tribes themselves, the Yurok tribe, for instance, 80% of their reservation has no electric power. They so, do have a lot of dead fish in the river. Yeah. So just to put this in context, they've lived now for um, decades, generations, with dams that dewatered their river, killed their fish, and gave them no power. Correct. None of the benefits promised to society worked their way down to the tribes. So they and have a few things to say about this. They do, and they were a major organizing factor when they became organized uh, on this. It made a big difference. Um, commercial fishermen now work very closely with the tribes and the tribal leaders on these issues with a lot of environmental groups. Uh, we actually worked out what is called the Klamath Settlement Agreement, along with the farming community, uh, ag community in the upper basin is dependent on water from the river, and that's an issue. And we wound up with more than 40 different stakeholders after years of litigation and years of conflict, a major fish kill in 2002, before that a major dewatering of the irrigation system in 2001, uh, you know, almost every year there was a crisis in the basin because it was overappropriated and overstretched in its resources. There were water quality problems. More fish are dying every year. All of this was enough. First, everybody fought each other. And at some point, people started saying, maybe we can work out something together where we each get what we need. Maybe not what all we want, but what we need. And we can get through this in a more sustainable way. Rebalancing the water equation so it's not overappropriated makes sense for a farmer. They are promised paper water that they never get and subject to lawsuits. It's better to have a sustainable budget where they get something more reliable and they can take that to the bank. The lower river fisheries can take that water to the bank too because it supports their communities and the tribe. Uh, in the end river fisheries, and it supports our um, uh, uh, commercial fishing folks up and down the coast. If we can avoid those kinds of weak stock management closures, that's money in the bank for us as well. So everybody had something that they were bringing to the table. So After years of fighting, we actually, in 2010, worked out a deal. And in the process, by the way, the company switched 180 degrees. They were all for relicensing the dams. And then, among other things, we took them on in their home territory. They were then, then owned by Scottish Power. So we went and picketed, along with the tribal uh, leaders, 
the fishermen, tribes, and some NGOs picketed the shareholders meeting of the Scottish power in Scotland. Hmm. So we wound up doing, you know, tribal ceremonies and leafleting and um, demonstrations against Scottish powers ownership of the and management of the Klamath dams. In Scotland, it is illegal to build a dam with no fish passage. Mm-hmm. None of these dams were built with adequate fish passage. And Scots know something about being underdogs. They do, and they're very sympathetic to the tribes, basically, given that they were dealt a dead river and no uh, benefits from the dams. Uh, we actually had introduced a resolution to condemn Scottish power in the Scottish Parliament, which was on the verge of passing. Mm. I led, a, a, you know, and Scottish power was considered a green corporation, a green energy corporation. Well, I led a, a delegation, mostly fishing and tribal folks, to London to talk with the investment um, uh, uh, people, the big uh, uh, green investors. Mm-hmm. Um who threatened to pull their investment out of Scottish power when, you know, within an hour of that meeting, we got calls from the CEO of Pacific Corps saying we got to meet. So we did. And um, that changed some minds. And also the thing that changed minds even more is that it turns out to be quite expensive to renovate these failing 19th century design dams to modern standards and to provide fish passage, which now they are required to have. They didn't when they were built. So the process of going through the relicensing uh, through the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC for short, which is the federal agency that licenses dams, was hitting a brick wall. And the brick wall was finances. In the meantime, the publicity for Scottish Power was so intense that uh, about six months later, they divested themselves of the company and sold it to Berkshire Hathaway. So Warren Buffett inherited this problem. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's not quite so sexy to go and pick it in Omaha, where their shareholders meet, as opposed to Scotland. Right. But we did that, too, uh, two years in a row and made a big stink and made a big splash in the media. Uh, this is a form of economic and cultural genocide to the tribes. And I think that that resonates. It's an economic uh, genocide for coastal communities who depend on those salmon for their livelihoods. It's, it's, a, it's a lose proposition for the farmers in the basin who get water from the river because their water is constantly tied up in litigation mm. year after year. And constant conflict. This is a basin where everything that could go wrong in Western water law went wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The, the good thing is that we were able to pull all the stakeholders together. I'll, I'll tell you, in 2001, the farmers sued. They, they got closed down because of one of our lawsuits around the Endangered Species Act because the ESA-listed fish were not getting enough water. Well, that's caused a closure. They lost about a third of their water supply that year. They sued to overturn it. And we intervened in their case. And at some point, the judge says, we're ordering mandatory settlement conference here. We're going to try to mediate this. So the court, on its own initiative, hired a facilitator, hired somebody to do a situation assessment, and ordered us to sit at the same table right across from each other, glaring, 
probably saying nothing for long periods of time, uh, and, and ordered us to negotiate. And at that point, we started actually getting some numbers on the table, some facts. Uh, that negotiation in 2001 was court-ordered, so there was a judge who was capable of actually deciding things if we could come up with something and implementing it. Mm-hmm. But in the end, what that fell apart, but it set the stage. And we started realizing that there are numbers here. There are facts that we can deal with, that there might be a middle ground. And we started working with the farmers and the tribal people started having meetings. There were actually meetings of a facilitator trying to get upper and base, upper and lower basin people together to explore how they could understand each other's viewpoints better. That was helpful. But in any event, uh, Troy Fletcher, who is a Yurok elder, um, helped lead the charge on that, getting people together. At one point, even in the midst of all of these conflicts, Troy brought a bunch of salmon from the upper, the lower basin to join the potato festival in the upper basin and serve salmon with potatoes to everybody there as a wow. gesture of how the basin could work together. Yeah, salmon and potatoes. Breaking yeah. bread together always seems to make a difference in these things. It always makes a difference if you can sit down and eat together. Mm-hmm. But in any event, so there were efforts and that resulted in this settlement. Unfortunately, part of the settlement needed congressional approval. So by 2015, various problems, the linkage between dam removal and a major watershed restoration, the watershed restoration, by the way, would have greatly benefited the farmers in the upper basin. But the Tea Party takeover of Congress meant that things were getting more and more politically polarized. And, you know, consensus agreements like this were no longer favored, unfortunately. And that was very sad and very tragic in a way, particularly for the upper basin farmers, that they don't get the benefit of the deal for restoration, water security, and things like that. Even though now, because the dams are still going to be there, whether Congress approved the deal or not, what we did with the dams is the principals all got together and rewrote the agreement to cut Congress out. And that means it reverts automatically back to the old standard FERC relicensing process, which it did. And a number of members of Congress that I won't name tried to stop the dam removal process through Congress, and they were cut out of the action. There's no congressional money in it. When we, I, I was one of the negotiators through every, each and every meeting for 10 years. We had looked at the Elwha Dam boondoggle where congressional approval was, for, to remove it was achieved, but then it was 12 to 14 years before it could get funded because the funding was a political hot potato and a bargaining chip and a lot of other irrelevant issues. So we avoided that. We set up a process very much like Condit Dam, also a Pacific Core Dam, which was run for a period of time and contributed to a dam removal fund. And that's what we did with this one. We wound up running the dams for 10 years and a portion of the revenues from the dams basically come back to a sinking fund uh, that totals at the end of 10 years, $200 million. And that's a major source of the funding for dam removal. Right. And just, just to understand here, the revenues for this are coming from hydropower generated by the dams or are yes. there other revenues? Is there yes. any other revenues involved? 
Well, this is a public utility. Public utilities are not standard corporations. They're more pass-throughs. The only thing that they make money on is providing power. And the, their customers are ratepayers, and the ratepayers pay back for the cost of producing the power. One of those costs is replacement of failed assets. That is, taking the dam down costs money, replacing the power costs money. That has to be part of the rate structure. This is a, an innovation. We have lots of infrastructure out there that's crumbling, but we don't have a routine way of creating a replacement pool of money. And this was an innovation. The other innovation is we did not rely on congressional money for this. So not a, a dime of congressional money will go to the actual uh, removal itself. Right. Big step. Um, yeah, and, big step. Now, these are privately owned dams, right? Correct. So, That's why they're licensed by FERC. Privately owned dams must operate only per a FERC license. Right. Could you pull this off on a dam that's not privately owned, that's federal? It's a different ball of wax, a whole bunch of different uh, issues. Uh, you're talking about the Snake River dams, which are in dispute now in the Columbia River. I'd rather not go into that because, again, not all dams are the same. They're all different, and that's a whole different ball of wax up there. But on this one, uh, the, that license expired in 2006. It gets an annual renewal only so far and so long as there's a plan for how to dispose of the dams one way or the other, either relicense or removal. What happened is with this change of, of ownership from Scottish Power to Berkshire Hathaway, there was also a change of management. Mm -hmm. Change of management was a lot more realistic about this. They saw ultimately that it was not cost effective to keep failing dams that generate very little power, only about 82 megawatts, which is nothing in the utility world. Mm -hmm. uh, that would cost them something like $500 million to renovate and when FERC did the analysis, they did their environmental analysis of multiple options, including keeping the dams and removal. They concluded that it was more expensive to keep the dams and to remove them and replace the power. This is where everything shifted. Now, the, I, I hear you about the power, and that makes a lot of sense. There's a piece here that, that still puzzles me, and it's the water. Uh, you've, you've got essentially a power interest and you've got a water interest from the farmers and how do they, they are parallel but not the same right the reason is that the water in the reservoirs this is not a storage reservoir it must it's a pass-through the water is the same water and whether it comes down today or tomorrow it's still the same water and same flow the the dams use water to generate power but they pass it through a turbine. They don't collect it and distribute it. They, these are not irrigation dams. Got it. All of the irrigation system, the federal irrigation system, is above the dams. Mm. This makes a big difference. In other words, the farmers, who typically are not anti-dam, they get no benefit right. from the dams. They all get, they just get deficits. They get a conflict. They get more and more lawsuits about the whole issue of how they're related to water flows. Uh, it's in their best interest to, to see the dams removed as well. And, uh, for one thing, some of the water 
uh, in the system evaporates in the reservoirs. Reservoirs evaporate more water than a free-flowing cold river in a mm -hmm. channel. Mm -hmm. So they will actually benefit by dam removal because they will it will create more or save more water. So this is why so many irrigation systems signed uh, up to the Climate Settlement Agreement. In addition to the water renovation, water reallocation, and more water security that was part of the second half of the deal. The Climate Basin Restoration Agreement was the water issue. That was not approved by Congress, so it failed. But the Climate Hydro Settlement Agreement, dealing with the dams itself, uh, moved forward. In 2016, we rewrote it. We set up the corporation. Uh, uh, it's a California corporation specifically for the purpose and sole purpose of removing the dams. We obtained the rest of the financing through bond acts in California, which are restoration, uh, watershed restoration bond acts. This is the biggest water res restoration program California has ever seen and will greatly benefit California's economy because it will restore a billion dollar salmon fishery that is in jeopardy now. So we have the money and uh, we have the capacity. Uh, we just were approved by FERC um, in July as having the capacity, the KRRC, Klamath R River Renewal Corporation. I sit on their board, by the way. Mm -hmm. It has the capacity. We've hired the best engineering firm in the world for dam projects, Kiwit. They're the ones that did the re-engineering in Oroville Dam when it uh, nearly collapsed. Yes. They have a lot of experience with this kind of big project. We have a great team. It's It has the imprimatur of the FERC now uh, insofar as moving forward, except that FERC was a little bit concerned that if there are cost overruns, they want the company to remain liable. So FERC said, we got to make the company a co-licensee. Originally, the deal was they give it over to the KRRC as a dam removal entity and get out of the basin. So that caused a burp uh, in the, the uh, a little bump in the road. We um, worked around that and we have a memorandum of agreement now where the states, the state of Oregon and state of California will become the co-licensees. Pacific Corps will get out of the project and the states working with the KRC will be responsible from dam, for dam removal. Yeah. That makes okay. a lot of sense. California owns a number of dams, runs dams, and they have a whole agency devoted to the kind of things that we're talking about. They have the capacity and the experience. What? We're moving forward. And yes, and today, just today, uh, today is the December 16th, we found out that just a few hours ago that FERC has acknowledge that our application is complete and that we're moving toward the environmental analysis process under NEPA and there will be public hearings on that. And the first part of it, that is transfer from Pacific War to this other entity, this group of entities, its co-licensees, is through the gate and moving toward the finish line. In January, January 16th, we will be filing the second part of it, which is the request for a, a, a permission from FERC to actually decommission the dams. Mm -hmm. And we expect that that will move forward pretty quickly after. So that's the next benchmark. One, one of the interesting things about this deal 
is that the the public interest in maintaining a public resource, the salmon and the water, uh, it has been uh, uh, moved to the public sector. Uh, and the company, which uh, owned the assets that caused most of this harm, are uh, they're out of it. Uh, they, they, they get a, essentially an indemnity, if I hear you right. Um, it, 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 am I hearing you right? Or is there something, is there some contribution from them that I'm missing? Well, $200 million is not chicken feed. Yeah. They're and putting $200 million from their ratepayers on the table. Got it. Okay. So that's, uh, uh, that. although that's ratepayers, not the company. Uh, well, the ratepayers are most of, uh, uh, there are 600,000 ratepayers in the state of Oregon. There are only about 45,000 ratepayers in California. Three of the four dams are in California. Only one is in Oregon. So how do you arrange it so that the costs of restoring this river, as you say, a major public asset that will be very valuable to the public, create jobs, create a better tax base. How do you share the costs of making that investment equitably in California when there are only 45,000 ratepayers? The way you do that in California is through a bond act. So it basically is generating money so that the benefits we invest in will generate income and tax revenues for the state of California as well as Oregon. And that was passed by a vote of the people a few years ago, if I remember. Proposition one, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so in order for this to work, you had to run a California statewide bond issuing author authorization through a public vote. Everyone yeah. in California. Now, that's got to be no small undertaking right by itself. No small undertaking. Um, I'm not alone in this. There are a lot of very smart people, including people. Uh, remember that the, the settlement agreements were signed by the governors of both states, uh, California and Oregon. And this was bipartisan too. Ronald, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was a Republican governor. And um, it makes sense. I mean, it makes sense to restore a public asset that is incredibly valuable as a public resource to provide dollars and jobs for people uh, in California as well as in Oregon. Right. Now, um, from here, uh, what are the next steps? There are a number of processes that we are completing now. We have a design that's nearly complete. It's uh, at 90% um, completion right now, and it'll be nearly 100%. And we're filing that January 16th with FERC. So we'll have probably the most well thought out, most developed proposal for dam removal they've ever seen, frankly. It's also capped in various ways so that there, there are unlikely to be any cost overruns. There's a whole mitigation program for dealing with landowners around the reservoir and their problems and needs, dealing with restoring the river system, dealing with stabilizing sediments from the removed, um, the reduced uh, channel. Uh, there will be a lot of sediment sediments um, um, settling there that needs to be stabilized. There's a lot of mitigation um, that will be part of the process. Mm -hmm. So those are all in, 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 uh, in play right now. 
there are a couple of other permits. There's Army Corps of Engineer permits. We're going to the National Marine Fisheries Service and Fish and Wildlife on impacts on endangered species. All that's being processed now. But uh, and the PUCs keep in mind that the Public Utility Commission, the watchdog entity that protects ratepayers, has approved all of this back in 2011, 2012. Um, they uh, concluded that the dam removal process is in the best interest of ratepayers. It's in the best interest of the public. They concluded it on the basis of the fact that it's the least cost alternative. Which is the statutory basis of a lot of their work. Um, exactly. There, yeah. And, you know, and the company is not an environmental organization. The PUCs are not an environmental organization. They look at costs uh, to the customers. It is clear from the numbers that it would cost two to two and a half times more for Pacific Corps to relicense the dams than to take them down. Their costs uh, taking them down is capped at 200 million. That they pass on to their customers, which is what every utility does. Utilities are not standard corporations. There's no profit here. They, the shareholders are capped in terms of the amount of benefit they can make in terms of their shareholder uh, dividend. That, that's legally a, a regulated monopoly. Right, right. Yeah. So it, you've got a world in which uh, the regulated monopoly, the regulator, uh, the, uh, the voters of the state of California, uh, the governors of both Oregon and Washington have all signed on. FERC the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has signed on. Um, and four very large dams on the third largest salmon river on the West Coast could well come down. When might salmon swim home from the North Pacific into a, a river that's fitter for them than it's been in a century? When might that day come? In January 2023, we will have drawn down the reservoirs. We will actually be removing the dams. And by the end of 2023, we will see a free-flowing river for the first time in 100 years. Wow. That's when the salmon come back. Remember, the genetics say, go up. The genes that they evolved with for millions of years are still there in the, in the stocks. They will move up. They will recolonize. We've seen in the Elwha that happens pretty quickly. Um, to the degree that we can encourage that in a variety of ways, plant, outplanting eggs and things like that, that might also be an option that's under consideration. But one of the remarkable things about salmon that always amazes me is they're so durable. They've lasted through ice ages. They've lasted through major changes. They've lasted through volcanic uh, catastrophes. When Crater Lake uh, was formed, that was a catastrophe beyond anything we've ever experienced as, mm -hmm. in modern times. They have managed to prevail. Life finds a way. What we need to do is get out of their way. And by taking the dams down, we effectively do that. We get out of their way and we let nature take its course to restore what was once one of the most abundant rivers, the third large, largest uh, salmon run in the continental U.S. And most of the habitat is still there. The pieces are all still there. 
a lot of that habitat is ready and waiting for a recolonization. And there's an, uh, an ongoing bi-state multi-agency plan for how to manage that, how to encourage that. That's part of what we're doing. We're funding some of that uh, through uh, mitigation funds. Uh, uh, all of that's on the table. And all of that has got a lot of very good people thinking it through and planning it out to the last jot in the iota. And uh, we've got a game plan and we've, we are back on track to implement it. That's what I hope to see. Well, thank you. I, I, I want to say Glen Spain, Pacific Coast Federation of Fishermen's Associations, uh, 40 years of work. Uh, you may just see some big fruition here. Just as an aside, I'm planning, uh, I'm, I'm proposing we do a fundraiser. We raffle off the ticket to push the first dynamite plunger. <laughs> I've pledged a month's salary already, so. There you go. That that'll be uh, uh, that'll be a popular ticket, I'm sure. <laughs> this, is, this is a world that uh, uh, if if people get to strike a blow for for a good cause instead of just for chaos, uh, that's uh, there are a lot of sensible. If it goes viral, it will be a great fundraiser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, smart thinking, Glenn. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're honored to have you here. Uh, this Thank is you, Brad. A, a, an incredible work of patience and determination. I, I will. And there are people who object to dam removal, but I will quote George Bernard Shaw. Those who say it cannot be done should stay out of the way of the people actually doing it. Thank you once again for listening to the Changing Waters podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. That was Glenn Spain of the Pacific Coast Federation of Fishermen's Associations, uh, one of the people who's done most for the longest to stand up for the ability of rivers and oceans to keep making fish. Thank you, Glenn, and thank you all for being with us. This is Brad Warren signing out for now. <laughs>